Good morning. How you feeling? Good. Um, we've had an incredible weekend with our students. I heard great things last night from both um, our student ministry and my kids, and it was incredibly timely because I, I think that the narrative that has risen in America and a lot of our world right now is a different narrative than what they talked about last night. And what they talked about last night was being renewed. And what we were talking about a moment ago is being available and that we would allow God to have his way within us and to change us. But the narrative that I'm hearing and maybe you've heard, how many of you have heard things like this uh, in this year? It's been a really different year and that's why I say this timely. How many of you have heard we're more divided than we've ever been? How many of you have felt the bitterness of being divided and isolated and forced into silos apart from brothers and sisters more than maybe you've experienced in your life to this point. Okay, so what I want to encourage us today is we're going to jump into the scriptures and we're going to look from the Old Testament to the New and how Jesus had a, how God embodied a plan for us in the scriptures and it was evident in Jesus. And from the Old to the New Testament today, we're going to look at God's plan for that bitterness. In fact, uh, it's going to be coming from a man in 1 John 4 who wrote from a hand that was once bitter. He himself was deeply bitter, isolated, divided from others, and knew only to fight for himself in John. John was called by Jesus as a son of thunder, and he would end his life as an apostle of love. The reason this is so very important, and I'm not trying to just say this as uh, something you repeat in a sermon. I've said this every week. What I'm talking about is how many of you have experienced life change at such a level that you can give testimony to it? How many of you have had something dramatically change in your life and it got you thinking about it differently? Like, I depended on this moment. I needed this. Okay. In the life of the church, that was the cross of Jesus. And what John is pointing to is he says, look, I was called by a man to be his disciple when I was otherwise overlooked by everyone else. I was uneducated. I was thin-skinned. I would fight at the drop of a hat. I was someone who only knew to be selfish and to fight for self and demand respect of others. But this guy comes along and still calls me. And he calls me to himself. And what I watched him do was not only call me and start to love me, he showed an example to me of loving the least and what that looked like. And that picture dramatically changed my life. It forever changed me. And so I embody the very title of Justin's sermon today, where Justin went in and he said, what is John trying to say? And he's saying that love delivers. That love, true love, will always deliver, and it takes the bitter and it makes it sweet. Can I ask you something? How many of you have ever felt embittered at some point in your life? We just said this year's felt a little bitter, but you felt that on a guttural level. And how many of you have been relieved of bitterness and felt the sweetness of grace and relief, taking the weight of the world off your shoulders? So this is what he's talking about. See, John embodied the very sermon title that we're discussing today. He was the bitter made sweet. I embody this very sermon. My life was dramatically changed. You, anyone in this room who's in Christ or anyone who's listening online has been changed dramatically by Jesus. And so you embody this very sermon too. And so what I want to tell you, church, is this. There is, the sermon title is the point. 
I'll try to unpack it as best I can today, but that's the, that is it. So we're going to just go to the scriptures and allow that to teach us what that point is saying. And maybe we'll walk out of here looking a little different than we walked in, and maybe we'll walk out of here recognizing that we got some work to do. 1 John 4 says this, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God, and everyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. Verse 9, key verse, the one I'm going to be preaching about today. This is how God showed His love among us. He sent His Son and only Son into the world that we might live through Him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us, and His love is made complete in us. This is how we know that we live in Him, and He in us. He has given us His Spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has seen His Son to be the has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, then God lives in them, and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love that God has for us. That very last sentence that we rely on the very love that God has for us. See, John depended. His life depended. He relied on the love that God had for him. Someone who would be called from amongst those who were not, not educated enough and, and not uh, good enough and those who were not experienced enough and those who were not uh, holding enough degrees to be called. He was called from amongst the least and he was trained to love like the least. And to love amongst those that otherwise, like himself, would be ostracized. When a leper would come into a, a room like this, they'd have to yell unclean so that everyone would part the way so that you wouldn't bump elbows with them and thus have the leprosy passed to you. But not just the leprosy, the hatred of God passed to you because God had stricken the leper and hated them. Obviously, that's what their religion taught. If someone in here were deaf, they had a demon. That's what their religion taught. And so you had to avoid the deaf at all costs. If someone was blind, they'd been stricken with blindness for a sin that either they them embodied or been passed down to them from their parents. So you had to stay away from them so that you yourself would not be stricken with blindness and incur the wrath of God. But then, then what did we see in the Gospels happen? What do we see John, the apostle of love, the one who was once thin-skinned, what do we see his master do? He goes and he puts his eyes on the blind and he gives them sight. Not only does he touch them, he touches their eyes, the place of their problem. He takes his hands and he places them to the those lacking hearing, and he opens the ears miraculously, giving them the ability to hear, not avoiding them or running from them, but touching them. He takes the leper and he holds him till the leprosy disappears. Do you, John seed in, saw in Jesus something that he had never experienced, and it was the love of God that he relied on because what he witnessed in Jesus is something that his religion had never taught him. It was something altogether new. And what he was learning was that Jesus' work on a tree makes the bitter sweet. It wasn't just the example of his life 
that Jesus gave that made him change. God's plan, the Father's plan, was to write all of the things that had been taught wrong to him and all the things that had made his world dark and bitter were changed in a moment, the, the, that moment that Jesus willingly gives his life on the cross and willingly goes to a tree to die and suffer for the sin of humanity, to take the darkness and push it back when he resurrects to bring you and I to life. So he depended on his love so he'd know how to live. I want you to hang with me. Because what he's saying is, I was delivered from a life that was so selfish, entrenched in a fight for myself, and I knew nothing else but to push others away and demand their respect, that he freed me from a life enslaved in earthly and insatiable desires. He saved me from sin. I want to show you an Old Testament prophetic picture of this very thing that I just said. This iconic moment that changed all of history was the cross of Jesus. It changed human history, and it was always God's plan. And it shows up in the Old Testament. It shows up in the passage I'm about to show you. It's going to show up in the passage I'm about to speak to in Exodus and in Genesis. From the very beginning, in Exodus 15, verse 26, it says this, Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, and they went to the desert of Shur. For three days they traveled in the desert without finding water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink its water because it was bitter. So the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What are we to drink? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a piece of wood. He threw it into the water, and the water became fit to drink. There the Lord issued a ruling and an instruction to them, and he put them to the test. He said, If you will listen carefully to the Lord your God, do what is right in his eyes. Church, listen. If you pay attention to his commands and keep all his decrees, I will not bring on you the diseases I brought on the Egyptians. For I am the Lord who heals you. He's the Lord that healed a son of thunder and made him an apostle of love. He's the one who took the, the people of God, the Israelites, out of bondage in Egypt. And he did so through numerous miraculous events, through plague. And he delivered them and sent them out from the hand and the bondage of the Egyptians into a place to only find themselves with their, their, their slave masters chasing them from where they had let them go to the banks of a sea that they could not pass. And then God did something miraculous. He parts the Red Sea and does what only God can do. He makes a way when there is absolutely no other way in the Red Sea. The Israelites walk through it. It collapses behind them taking down their, their slave masters. They get on the other side. And how many of you at this point, how many of you at this point would think, man, everything they've experienced to this point, especially that Red Sea picture, wow, why would they ever doubt God? How many of you would go, wow, he is with them. He is for them. He's doing things that we've never seen. How many of you think their hearts and minds would dramatically turn in that moment and they would just follow without any grumbling? I would think so too, but here's the thing. There's no way to really know it until it's tested. So what does God do? It says within three days of the Red Sea, they entered and walked into the desert shore. Three days from that moment where the sea opened and they walked through. It is, it is said that it's humanly possible for us to live without water, drinking water, for three to four days. We'll die. We literally find ourselves on death's door. Like it's, it's improbable 
We can't make it more than three or four days without water when your body is 60% water. Dehydrate, start to go through uh, maybe some mental issues. Mark, you may be hallucinating. They walk into the desert shore. They find this lake that they actually call Marah, which means bitter, and they find water hoping that they can drink it, and then that water is dysentery, and they can't drink it or they'll get sick. It's it's unfit. It's bitter. They can't drink it. Only a evil picture, if you will, like a, 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 an evil tease. They're on death's door. They have just seen God split the sea so they could walk through. And now, three days later into the journey, they have an opportunity to trust. They, they turn, look at this water, and go, why did God bring us out here? At least in bondage, we had fish to eat. At least our slave masters who beat us and held us under fed us and gave us water. What are we going to do out here? Die? Why did you lead us here, Moses? Having forgot what happened just three days later. And you know why they forgot what happened three days before? What happened just three days earlier? Because they're desperate and their bodies need water. There's despair. They are probably going to die if they don't get water soon. So they cry out and they grumble against their leader. And Moses turns and he does something really important. He cries out to God, it says. He cries out to God in verse 25. He cries out. And what, what does God do? When a leader cries out to God, he will always show an answer. When the people of God cry out to God in despair... God will always show an answer. So Moses was obedient. He cries out. And that obedience caused a miraculous event to take place. It always causes a miraculous event to take place. Moses' eyes are lifted to a piece of wood near that water. And God says, take that wood, throw it in the water, and I'm going to make the bitter sweet. I'm going to make it drinkable. I'm going to give my people who are at death's door life. On a tree. Do you hear what he just did? Do you see what just took place? He says, I'm going to take those who were called out of bondage by my name. And I'm walking with and I'm doing things miraculously for. Providing all the way. Present with them. And I'm going to take them to the place where they're uncertain if I'm going to show up again. And they're in utter despair. And I'm going to bring life. Can you imagine how they must have felt that the heat of that moment when they are utterly dehydrated, maybe even hallucinating, and now they can't even drink or sustain life? How demoralizing must they feel? Probably like, probably like the Apostle John felt when he had been the thin-skinned individual, the son of thunder, called by God when no one else would have ever talked to him who was religious, taught him by Jesus to love the least, and then Jesus dies. He goes to a cross. Anyone identified with Jesus is also going to go to a cross, so he runs for his life, and then guess what? They don't hear from him for three days. How long was the journey from the Red Sea to the Pool of Marah where the bitter water existed? How de demoralizing must have felt? How depleted must have Three days. How depleted must John have felt? I gave my life to this. Now I have no one. I watched him three days ago die right there. Three days ago, he died right there. 
And then on that third day, he hears the testimony of Peter and the testimony of Mary's. And here they come. Jesus is alive. He came back. How bitter must it have felt during those three days to go, I followed this guy. I gave my life. I started to see my life change, but now he's gone. And how is this going to get fixed? I don't have a people anymore. I left Judaism. They're going to kill me if I go back because they think I'm identified with Jesus. The people who left Judaism to follow him, they, we're out here on our own. We got nothing. We got no Gentiles. We got no Samaritans. We got nobody. We are alone. We are desperate. And we're going to be chased till we are dead. During that three days where they're waiting for the story that we all know, and too often is the American church looking backwards, take for granted that he is going to rise and in him he is going to live. John will actually live and all mankind who's called upon Jesus will live. But in that moment where that faith is tested, in that moment well, you're not sure day three's coming. He told us, but now he's gone. In that moment, when you're not sure, in that moment when you're looking at the water and you can't drink it and it can't give you life, what do you do, church? Do you quit? Do you just give up? Just collapse? Just cripple and go, well, what was all this for? Thanks, God. Do you just buckle and die? Or do you have hope that at the three days in Exodus and the three days at the cross, Jesus brought to life what was already dead? He was just helping us understand our state, that without him, we're dead. We're already dead. He was helping us recognize our needs. So here it is, the bitterness. The bitterness is death. It's division. In a darkened world, governed by selfish and sinful people enslaved to their sin, that's what bitterness is. It's isolated and alone. Can I ask you, has any of that definition felt a little bit like the year that you've just endured? And let me ask you this, church. How many of you think that those in your life right now who do not know what Jesus did miraculously on the cross to bring you to life, and he died for them so that they could come to life, how do you think they feel enduring the year that we were just handed? We have stories like the brook of Marah. We have the cross. We know that, the, that it's not finished. We know that in the end there's victory. But what about those who don't know that? They live in bitterness. Listen, it's not been sweetened for them yet. We just talked a moment ago about how we saw students' lives changed by Jesus at the cross, move from death to life. And Scott had to ask the church to clap louder. Hello? Did you hear what I'm saying? Like someone moved from death to life. How many of us are just a little tired of the church just existing with golf clubs. How many of us are a little bit offended 
maybe that we spat in God's face and slapped him for what he's done because we just exist and we're just trying to survive 2020 ourselves. And when he has created 2020 as an opportunity for the church to rise up and put more focus and more attention on the cross than we do on donkeys or elephants, we don't sit and go, thanks God. We go, no, my hope is actually in you. Hello? Like, you are the thing that makes the bitter sweet, and the sweetness is both life, like true life, like life abundant, the thing that Jesus came to give us, like understanding who I am and who he sees me to be, who he's made me to be, and walking in the abundance of that, and walking with brothers and sisters who know that. And it's unity. It's taking that truth, that knowledge to those who right now live in darkness and they're embittered. Here it is. I'm going to give us a challenge, church, because we got a lot of work to do. And I need you to hear me really clearly today. 1 John 4, 9 says, This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. True life, eternal. As soon as... The church, like John, saw Jesus resurrected. He rejoiced and he went to work. Church, we have work to do. And I'm going to tell you what work we have to do. We never outgrow this. Hear me? We're never going to outgrow the cross and what he did there. How he took your life in bitterness, son of thunder, and made it an apostle of love. My question is, what are you doing with it? Because... What you're doing with it would change the world around us. God made his promise in Genesis 12 to a man named Abraham. And then he sealed that promise in Genesis 17. And he formed a covenant with Abraham. In that covenant, he said that he would make Abraham the father of many nations. That he would make him the father of all nations. All tribe, all tongue would be and point to Abraham his father. When Jesus was challenged by the, the Pharisees, they said... Abraham is our father because they held to that promise. Paul, who was the Pharisee of the Pharisees, the, the, the elite, the one who knew the law better than anyone else, waiting to be on the Sanhedrin, had his life dramatically changed by Jesus, gave up riches, fame, and fortune in Judaism to follow Jesus and put his life at risk. And here's what he said to the church at Galatia in, verse, in chapter 3. He says, understand, verse 7, then, that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Those who have placed their faith in God, in Jesus, and what he did on the cross, they are the children of Abraham. The Abrahamic covenant was fulfilled in Jesus. Scripture foresaw that God saw and justified the Gentiles by faith and announced the gospel in advance to Abraham. He was telling him what he was going to do. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who rely on their faith are blessed among Abraham, a man of faith. Verse 13, Christ redeemed us from among the curse of the law. By becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hung on a pole or a tree. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to both Gentile through Christ as it did to Jew. So that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Verse 16, the promises were spoken to Abraham of his seed. Scripture does not say seeds, meaning many people, but to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. So in Christ... You are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized in Christ have been clothed in Christ yourselves. Therefore, there is no Jew, no Gentile, no slave, no free, no male, no female. 
For you are all in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, you are Abraham's seed and the heirs according to said promise made to Abraham in Genesis. What does this mean? It means that true belonging, true unity because of the cross is evidenced by all people. All tribe, all tongue being evidenced in the family of God. A picture of the gospel and what Jesus did on the cross is evidenced by unity, not division, not factions. It's evidenced in love, not segregation. So, Justin, what are you trying to say? We have work to do because Jesus didn't die so that we'd have white church. Jesus didn't die so we'd have black church. He didn't die so we'd have a Korean church. What he died for was to fulfill what God had in his mind back in Genesis. It's not the ideals of a man. And what I'm saying are not just a good idea or something that I think is cool. What I believe God did was he had expanded his heart. And he said, look, I've created every single person in my image. And until the church reflects a picture of heaven, which I believe that we're all going to peer into heaven one day and we're going to have our emotion likened to what we do right now in the falls. We look at mountains and we see just a blanket of color. We're going to peer into heaven and we are going to see a mono-ethnic people, all one family under God. And until we experience that and see that, we got work to do because we are not living the gospel. If you look around and your church is homogenous, then you are not living a gospel work. Hello? In Matthew 5, he said that you are to love your enemy if you love those who look like you, sound like you, believe like you, vote like you, and that's all you love. You're no different than the tax collector. You're not my church. He said, blessed are those who thirst and hunger for righteousness. Church, what do you thirst and hunger for? To be siloed with people that look and sound just like you? Or to be a picture of the gospel to a, church, to a world that is darkened and without, without hope right now. But yet we hang on that very hope because of the truth. And until it is reflected in the diversity of one family, we got work to do. It's not a cool ideal. It's the heart of God. And it should. It should break ours. I don't. I don't care if you like hearing this, and I don't care if you agree. It should break your heart if you are identified with Jesus, that there are not brothers and sisters that sit across the aisle that look nothing like you. Their skin is darker. Their hair is different. They may, they may vote and have different political ideals than you. What you have when that is not taking place is you have a country club. When, when that is not evident, what you have 
is a country club. And every person in here who knows Jesus and has felt the sweetness of Jesus' life take you from death and desperation to unity in the family of God, not division, not isolated, not on your own, but he brought you unto himself so that he could be your father, not Abraham. He was just a figure. He was just a prophetic picture so that we could have one father under heaven until the church of Jesus is broken because we don't see a lot of different looking people under these arms in this family then the church has a lot of work to do. And here's the thing. For those who are in Christ right now, there's something in you that's welling up. And you go, this is true. This is right. This is gospel. But anyone who doesn't feel that right now, and you go, this is just offensive. Listen, the gospel's offensive. And I want to hear, I want, I want to tell you something. I need you to really listen. Because he said to Moses and the Israelites, please listen very closely. There is love for you that this world cannot offer. It's available in Jesus alone. He did that work on the cross for you. And I don't care how long you've sat in places like this, you do not know him. And you've not been delivered from that mindset, that thought, until you embrace that and you start to feel that thing rise up and you it goes, this is right. This is what we're to be about. Because if that is not happening in you right now, then you, you do not know him. And you're the person that I've been begging and praying for before I walked in this room. You need Jesus to change your heart and deliver you from bitterness and def- division and darkness. You need hope. And it's only found in him and it'll only be healed in him because he heals. He takes sons of thunder who are bitter and separate and isolated. He makes them apostles of love. That's what he does. He heals and he alone heals. The statement that the Sunday of our week is the most segregated day of our week should it should be like nails on a chalkboard for you and for me believer it should drive us at at the core it should make us sick to our stomach and here's the thing how many of you have heard that statement before just just hands no no one's going to get in trouble just hands you've heard that before and how many of you have have just I'm given an opportunity for repentance here. You know, that's sad, but I mean, it's just what it is. I mean, that's sad, but it, it, I mean, it's just the way it is. How, I mean, that's the world we live in. We can't change that. Then why are you in it? Like, church, like the reason it should go, this is right, is because that isn't. That's not okay. The church is the most sacred day of the week. No, if you've accepted that and done nothing about it and haven't been convicted, that means you've settled and you're comfortable in that statement. And let me, let me assure you, anyone who truly knows him is sickened by that statement. We've got work to do. Are there needs more important than yours and mine? Yes, they are. I didn't say it, he did. Matthew 22 says that you're to love them as you'd love yourself. In Matthew 28, he said that you'd make disciples of all nations, all tribes, all tongues. In, ver- in John 13, he said, I give you a new command, that you would love them like I did. How did he love us? He made the bittersweet by dying on a cross for us. He gave up. He was the first to die. It was God's plan, and he sacrificed himself so that we could live. We are called as a church to sacrifice for them. How do we know this? Paul said in Philippians 2, esteem others' needs as better than your own. 
from old to new, this is God's plan. And God's plan is best. Whatever Jesus says is best. He said, what are the greatest commandments? Love him with all you have. Love others like I would. When Jesus says it's greatest, listen, church, there's nothing else to focus on. That becomes it. So prior to the waters of Merar, we draw this to close, and I bring the band back up. The Israelites experienced the miraculous, and then they went through desperation for three days. How many of you experienced the miraculous before? Every student should, like, be cheering. You just came out of a weekend last night. How many of you have experienced the miraculous before church? And Okay, so golf clap. It's okay. It's all right. How many of you, uh, your memory's too short, though? We experienced the miraculous, but I forgot. I was brought from death to life. But, man, Jesus, if I'm honest with you, not Justin, in this moment, this is time to be honest with Jesus. I've forgotten. I've not let that drive me. I've not been the person who's reaching across the aisle. I'm not the person that has been dependent and, and like, like, like determined to not be forced into a silo. I'm someone who is seeking to reach across the aisle wherever I can because I had a need. I was desperate. Just like the waters at Marar, when those Israelites came to that water and they couldn't drink it, they were desperate. It was essential for life. They were going to die. They had to have water. So God fixed it on a tree. Just like those disciples who were called, who were not the best of us, they were the worst of us, and they lived their lives amongst the least of us. They were bitter when Jesus died and they saw him hung on a tree, but they rejoiced when he came back to life because they knew that their life was established in him and he had changed and everything he said was true. Church, we've changed and life alone comes by the intervention of God. God intervened in Exodus. God intervened in Genesis. God intervened in 1 John. God intervened in the Gospels. God is intervening right now in your heart and in your mind in this room. Moses is obedient. Miracles happen. Jesus was obedient. Miracles happen. Will the church be obedient right now? And you don't answer for anybody else. You answer for you. I answer for me. Will I be obedient right now? Will the miracles take place because I'm obedient? We get to live because he died. Because of this, he left us in the world to make the bittersweet as his church. His ambassadors. Not to take up arms against our brother in this world. But to obediently lay down our lives and love them like he did. Everyone created in his image just like you and I were. So church, I'm leaving this one last thought. Because of him you live. Because of him I live. But because of us... The world that is bitter and dark right now should have hope. So, Father, today I pray you'd change our hearts. pray you'd revive us. pray you'd renew us. You started to work in our students this weekend. That's not unfamiliar for this church. That seems to happen a lot. 
God, let that work continue right now in this room in the hearts of the adults and the leaders. God, may you find a people. Because when we were desperate, we watched a leader cry out to you. And God, you changed things. You fixed it on a tree. When Moses was desperate, you fixed it. When the people of God were desperate, you healed the world on a tree and gave us hope. Today, for anyone in this room who needs to know you, needs to know that hope, needs to know what you healed, I pray that they would be sensitive and obedient to respond to your prodding them today. For the church needs to be revived. I pray they'd be sensitive to your prodding today. Have your way with us, Lord. If you're here, and um, I don't want anyone looking around. I'm going to close this prayer in a moment. But if you're here, and you go, I need Jesus. I need that hope that you're talking about. I need life because I am dead and desperate. I'm divided. I'm isolated. Will you just email me this week? I want you to pray right now. Cry out to God right now. He will save you. But I want you to email me this week because I'd like to talk to you. Prayer at thefellowship.cc. All right. We love you, Jesus. We ask this in your name. Amen. Please stand.